Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Tommy is about some books. One, two, one, two, three, four. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And uh, Sydney, it's a very special episode today. I'm very excited. Me too. Um, So do you want to talk about what we're talking about? And then I will introduce our very special guest. Yes, sure. Uh, One uh, topic that we have, we've wanted to cover for a while, and then specifically after our episodes earlier this month where we discussed conversion therapy, we had even more listeners than we'd already have kind of write us emails and say, you know, something that you've never covered, something that you've never talked about and that we had already wanted to talk about for a long time was anything that had to do with uh, transgender person's health issues, um, anything about surgeries or hormonal therapies or the history of that. We've never talked about any of it. And so it's something we've wanted to talk about for a long time. um, And we're finally taking the opportunity to do so because we have a special guest. Our special guest this week uh, uh, has been r- writing for basically every video game outlet that that <laughs> I like. Um, uh, she is Laura Kate Dale. And Laura, as you've almost certainly guessed from Sydney's introduction, we've brought you here to talk about you getting the scoop on Mario and Rabbids uh, months before it was <laughs> announced. Uh, we're all anxious to hear how you did it. I just wanted to bring you on to say nice well, uh, well here's, here's the secret to how I did it. Um, I'm good friends with Rabid Peach, and we spent one slightly sordid night together, and uh, <laughs> I, I walked away with a lot of very useful information. <laughs> and uh, uh, aside from uh, leaking uh, video games, uh, uh, Laura is also a transgender woman who we thought could offer some really valuable perspective. Um, we realized after we did our... Um, uh recent conversion therapy episode that there's a lot of topics that we would love to talk about that we don't necessarily uh uh have the context for i guess due to our life experience sure i I mean i think as a as a doctor i can sometimes decode like medical talk and the technical end of things i have that kind of expertise and i'm i've become i guess like an amateur historian I'm a researcher <laughs> anyway i can do that stuff but that's as far as i can take a topic and that's where i turn up <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh yeah we're gonna be pretty focused in this episode this is a, a very broad topic with a lot of facets yeah. to it um and we're going to be focusing for this episode just on uh uh the uh, uh, one surgical aspect that's how broad this is though one surgical aspect of the, well, two. the those two yeah okay 
Well, you don't even know. I don't even know. See, this is why I don't do I don't know. I don't. I hate having to pretend like I know what I'm doing. This is exhausting. (laughs) I know. That's that's my whole day, honey. It's fine. Just just keep saying words until it sounds like you know what you're on about. (laughs) Uh, That's usually my my plan. But obviously that this is not uh, surgery is not the be all end all of the transgender experience, as I understand it from reading on the Internet. Right. Oh, go ahead. Go on. Go on. No, please, Laura, please. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 definitely one of those things that like when people talk about transition, that's for many people outside of it. That's the like the finish line that people see where it's like, oh, have you done this yet? Are you you a real trans person yet? But like a lot of people don't do surgical things for a lot of valid reasons. And like, you know, a, a good simple one to throw out would be surgery is costly and difficult and painful and there's a mm-hmm. lot of reasons why you might, might not want to go through very intensive surgery and things so it's not the be all and end all but it is a thing that a lot of people have questions about uh and 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 from a medical perspective it's one of the aspects that is sort of the most in our in the sawbones wheelhouse i guess you could say um right exactly and that, and, and thank you for for saying that laura that's exactly what um, I've learned through my research that I wanted to make sure we we communicated as well is that we're not I know that that's a problem. I think, like you said, the media focuses on that a lot. And I don't want us to be one more um, voice saying that mm-hmm. focusing on just the surgery. But from a medical standpoint, it is a really interesting history how some of these procedures came about, um, who first did them and and where they were done. It's really interesting. And specifically, we're going to focus on um, patients who were uh, assigned male at birth and have chosen to go the surgical route transitioning and uh and kind of the history of vaginoplasty and gender confirming surgery on that side of things and then also i wanted to talk just a little bit about because you would express some interest interest in this mm-hmm. laura in the history of uterine transplant because that's a that's kind of a, a whole other surgery and topic unto itself but it's it's very interesting and it's also very current and relevant because mm-hmm. We're just kind of figuring that part of it out in the last couple of years. Okay, Sid, we have bloviated enough, enough table setting. Please begin. Talk some history. Talk some history, history. nerd. I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. I don't think you're a nerd. It just seems like a thing to say after you tell someone to talk some history. I think you're both a nerds from the outside of this. You have a podcast about medical history. Gosh. <laughs> I think that's fair. But that's I'm wearing a, a leather thing. jacket uh, every time we record, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe oh. if you put sunglasses on, you could avoid nerd category. <laughs> okay. uh, usually, uh, for a lot of these topics, I'll try to take us all the way back to ancient times. And um, there are some mentions when we talk about uh, gender confirming surgery. There are some mentions of this uh, when you read like uh, Hippocrates. I mean, even one of our show favorites, Pliny the Elder, like peripherally mentions that this is kind of something that is happening, but there's no real good descriptions. There's nothing for me to really pinpoint or point to of what was happening or what exactly was being done. Um, and a lot of it kind of overlaps with like descriptions of just surgeries that were simply castration, which is a totally other thing and not exactly what we're talking about. So if you kind of go back to ancient times, you're not really you're not really going to get a whole lot of information. So I wanted to kind of focus on the more modern history of the actual like surgeries and procedures as we understand them today. And that really dates back to the early 1900s 
in Germany. That's where we kind of see the beginning of, of some of this. Some of this was being done in Denmark, and then a lot of this was uh, research was done in Germany um, with a Dr. Steinack and a Dr. Hirschfield. And their initial, there was an interest in um, patients that they were already seeing and, and discussing kind of um, transgender issues with and how to aid these patients in their transition process, not just um, the way that they were dressing and presenting to the world, but also medically were there things that they could do uh, to help with their dysphoria, as we would probably call it now. Uh, so they began to study estrogen therapy first, and they actually created the world's first synthetic estrogen for this specific purpose. Uh, so that was that was the beginning of the of the treatments that they were offering. But then they kind of started moving on to an interest in surgical procedures. Are there also surgeries that, that we could do and how would we do them and, and what would that look like? Um, and they attempted some of these surgeries pretty early on uh, in Berlin and in Dresden um, at the what was called the Institute for Sexual Research. Um, and this was it some- sounds <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a pretty chill place. I, yeah, I, have I-, to, I mean, I was going to say it sounds like a pretty big party over there, like yeah. sexual research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A whole institute just for that? Excellent. They probably had to share a building, though. Like, you know, there had to be, like, below was probably, like, the Institute of Studying uh, 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 Planner Warts or something like that. I, like, I'm, I'm just picturing them renaming it, like, the Institute of Really Good Bangin'. <laughs> <laughs> I think it I think it probably actually would have been like you guys are joking about kind of kind of a cool place to hang out because these were really progressive thinkers who were um, looking at the world and looking at gender in a way that a lot of people weren't kind of up to date with yet were lagging behind. And so this was really like the forefront of of this kind of thinking and progressive thought and research and philosophy and really interesting time. Um, and I learned something. I thought that out of this came the first surgical procedure w- being done on Lily Elb. That was I. Mm. That was a misconception on my part. But uh, she was not the first patient to undergo this surgical procedure, which I didn't. Why did she get a movie? Did you already know she had a movie? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. knew she had a movie. Yeah, <laughs> remember it was a huge thing because. Uh, well, yeah, was it I Eddie Redmayne, that. right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Grumble, yeah. grumble about Eddie Redmayne's casting there, but that's for another time. <laughs> like the, I, yes, exactly. Stop I, I, casting cis men. <laughs> exactly, because uh, Lily Elb was a transgender woman, and uh, and like you are both talking about the subject of the Danish girl, but she was not the first person to undergo surgery. She was very soon after the second, Mm -hmm. (laughs) second person. But the first was actually someone named Dora Richter. Um, I think uh, part of uh, Lily Elb was already a a performer and well-known. And I think that's Mm. part of why she's kind of remembered more. And then Mm. she also, whereas in Dora Richter's case, uh, they, they didn't go all the way with the surgical procedures to an attempt on a uterine transplant. They did. Uh, with Lily Elb. They they attempted a uterine transplant as kind of the final, because it was a series of surgical procedures, and they attempted that as the final procedure. And that was the stumbling block at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the, the procedure that actually her body rejected the transplanted uterus. And unfortunately, three months later resulted in her passing away from infection and rejection. Um, 
which was something that we just didn't understand well at the time that when it came to organ transplant, we have to worry about tissue matching and making sure that the body isn't going to reject the donor organ. And this is true for any organ, not just a uterus. Um, And that there are drugs we can use to prevent rejection of a donor organ. This was just stuff we didn't understand yet. So, so I think that might be all that might be part of why we we tend to remember Lily Elmore than we remember Dora Richter. So all this took place in Germany, and this is happening up to the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can imagine, in the 1930s, I, I see where this is going. <laughs> this is, things have been going so well till this point, but uh, I see where we're headed. Uh, yes, exactly. So, because in the 1930s of the Nazis taking over Germany. Um, specifically at the Institute for Sexual Research, there was a huge book burning, all of their research, all of this uh, literature and data that they've been accumulating to talk about how they're doing, what they're doing, and why it's so important and why it's moving forward. All of this was lost. I'm, I'm just um, going to make a wild guess here quickly. I've never actually heard anyone talk about the Nazis and trans people, but I'm guessing they weren't the biggest fans. I feel no. like that's a safe guess to make no. about the Nazis. Wild <laughs> twist. They were huge. In this one thing, they were just super, super progressive. No, no, no I, they were terrible. You're absolutely right. And I think that that's something that probably doesn't get talked about because the fact that uh, under the Nazi regime, uh, transgender persons were persecuted gets kind of lumped in under the fact that everybody else in the you know lesbian bisexual gay community everyone else got persecuted and it all just kind of gets put in together but you're absolutely right um so all of this research was pretty much lost and they actually destroyed well they didn't destroy it with bombings and whatnot that happened afterwards the dresden women's clinic where a lot of this was being done was destroyed um so unfortunately this was probably a major setback yeah no no doubt about it because a lot of stuff was lost but there was a young physician who had initially been studying at the Institute, Dr. Harry Benjamin, who had actually immigrated to the U.S. much earlier uh, in 1914, kind of accidentally. He had been visiting the U.S. and then he tried to go home, but then World War One happened. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and he couldn't get home. <laughs> Don't you just hate it when World War One happens when you're trying to catch a flight? It's the worst. Yeah, I've had I've been in that exact same situation, uh, except it was the crew needed to go sleep for the night because they oh. were overworked. So it's Com- like same thing, basically. Same, same difference, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Being, you know, forced to immigrate to a brand new country. Because of a war. I don't remember if they did that to me or not. I don't remember being forced to immigrate to another country, but it felt that way for me. <laughs> so so he got stuck here because of World War One, and, and, you know, that was probably to our benefit in the long run. He was working in New York, and actually he would, like, summer in San Francisco, which at the time was quite a trek, you know? Mm-hmm. This was like the early 1900s. Yeah, just getting it. Oh, yeah, it's like half the summer's gone by the time you get there. I know. That's what I was kind of thinking. You get your Conestoga wagon, and by the time you make it. <laughs> the entire summer was just one really cool road trip back and forth. <laughs> right? By the time you get there, it's time to go back, but you enjoyed the ride. <laughs> he just puts his feet in the ocean. He's like, ah, I did it. Anyway. He uh, he worked, as as many physicians back in the day, he didn't have like one specific specialty. You could kind of just do whatever 
you felt like you were good at doing. And so he worked kind of as a psychiatrist sometimes. He did like general medical stuff, probably what you would think of as I'm a family doctor, what we would do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also kind of tinkered with endocrinology and so hormonal research and that kind of stuff as well. Uh, And in his travels and studies and all the different things he was doing, he actually ran into Alfred Kinsey. Oh, right. Liam Neeson. (laughs) Liam Neeson. (laughs) And of course, Kinsey was doing a lot of progressive research on sexuality. And Kinsey asked him, would you see one of my not patients per se, but somebody who I've been talking to. It's a a young transgender girl whose mother is sought me out to say, you know, every time I take my daughter to a doctor or a psychiatrist or anyone for help with this, they all say the same thing. Well, we'll try to treat them so that they will, you know, feel like a boy. And that's not, I think it's wrong and I don't want that. And I believe that I need help from a doctor to, you know, allow my daughter to live her gender identity. Laura, in your experience, in your personal experience, and I'm going to be asking Laura some you know, personal questions and I told her to just tell me to to, to go jump off a pier if I, if I uh, uh, <laughs> ask about something she doesn't feel like talking about but when you're talking like from your experience when you started talking with doctors was this uh was it more a more hopefully accepting environment than we find here in like 1914 Uh, it's better but i wouldn't say it's good there's still a lot of uh, muddled around complicated stuff even probably five or six years ago when i was first looking for hormone stuff um I think for me, I had to go through three different general practitioners before I found a doctor who knew enough about trans people to understand what I was asking of them and what the accepted like pathway to help was. Mm-hmm. A bunch of, like the first two doctors I visited just didn't know anything about trans people or what the procedure was for referring me on to anyone that could help. Nice. And mm. beyond that, I think I I had to be referred from a general practitioner to a mental health uh, expert who did an hour-long interview, who sent me back to the general practitioner to wait a year to get a referral to a specialist, and then six months between appointments with a specialist. It, it, it's a whole bouncing around waiting game within the medical establishment. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's still like finding some a, a doctor that knows enough to be able to help is more mm-hmm. the issue now than a refusal to help, I guess. You mentioned a mental health interview. Is there uh, still an idea? That, I, I mean, did, did you get the sense that there was um, like an attempt that you had to be sort of vetted, like to really, really, really make sure that you felt this way? Oh, or is that the, mm. is that the idea? <laughs> yeah. So some of these stages, even since I went through in in the UK, have already gone. Like, I don't believe you get referred to the mental health service anymore, but a lot of a lot of the gates that are put in place of access to things like hormones or surgery are gates that are designed to make sure you're really definitely super definitely 1000% trans and there's, there's no mistake um it's it's not enough to just rock up and be like hey i feel uncomfortable with my gender and would like some help with that like they deliberately put in multiple checks and balances really spread out that it it's difficult because I get 
the the reasoning of things like, oh, we want to make sure you're interviewed by two separate doctors who then on a separate occasion will agree with each other and make sure they both agree that you're trans and that you've not said anything different to them. But <laughs> like I get I get that stuff, but the problem is is that like using myself as an example, I was still undergoing my first testosterone-based puberty when I was seeking help transitioning. Mm-hmm. And every day that I was waiting for help with access for things like hormones and hormone blockers and things were days that my body was changing in ways that I was unhappy with that were going mm-hmm. to make it more difficult when mm. I did get hormones to undo the damage that had been done. And I spent like two years before I, like going through the medical system before I eventually got hormones. And that oh was gosh. two years of like changes to my body that, you know, could have been prevented had they just been like, oh, you're uncomfortable with, with your gender. We can probably trust you on that. Sure. <laughs> right. That's got to be incredibly frustrating. It, it really is. Like, so, I, I know I'm going on a slight tangent here. A bunch, no, please. A, a bunch of people end up buying, uh, particularly for trans women, um, a lot of people will end up buying hormones online without going through a doctor because of that frustration of, I mm-hmm. don't want to have my body changing in ways I don't want it to sure. while I'm waiting for medically approved access. And that's a real problem because obviously people aren't getting their blood work checked. They're not making sure that this isn't that their levels and things are correct it's mm-hmm. it's it, I, it, and I, I should clarify the reason why i specify this is more with trans women is because for trans men testosterone in many countries is a controlled substance because of its uses in bodybuilding and things mm-hmm. and as such you can't just buy it easily online but estrogen right. is fairly easy to get a hold of and a lot of people do so just because the waiting times to get a doctor to say yes you're trans i'll help you yeah i i think you know not uh, to kind of continue the the tangent i I think that's definitely something um from having been through a medical school here in the u.s not Mm. terribly long ago it's getting longer and longer ago but (laughs) not too long ago um these aren't issues that are discussed nearly enough in in Mm. u.s medical schools doctors have not enough training at all i mean i'm a i'm a family doctor but i you know there should still be a baseline training for who to refer to and and how to manage these issues and what kind of specialists and what kind of medications and i mean we're just now i know at at the medical school that i'm affiliated with we're just now beginning to develop this curriculum and Mm. make it part of routine education for all of our medical students Mm -hmm. Um, just now. And so I can understand that being a huge problem. You mentioned that in the sort of medical database software that you all use, they're just like, as in a few weeks or months ago, was added the option for uh, uh, gender and preferred pronouns and mm-hmm. um, the, and, the, mm-hmm. and and more flexibility there, like just in the f- f- past few weeks. Oh, right? it's been, yeah, it's been within the last two months that they've just added this into our software so we can even, you know, indicate that in the medical record. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, and there was a lot of education that went with that um, with a lot of the physicians as to how to use that and what does that mean? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, and that's not because we, I mean, these are patients that exist in our community. I know we we live in a tiny little town in West Virginia, but these patients are in our community as well. And, you know, we need to know how to take care of them. And mm. I think a lot of doctors don't. 
uh, poor Harry Benjamin. We just brought him out of the annals of history, and then we we pivoted away from him. So let's let's, let's he's like, hey, wait, this is my moment in the spotlight. So because we got off chatting. So where 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 were we with so, with old Henry Harry? Sid, see, I I I misnamed him. That's how bad it is. I'm I'm he's slipping away from me. I got his name wrong like three different times as I was trying to learn more information about him. So okay. it's, I mean, it's hard. He's Harry Benjamin. First names. Yeah. It's, it's not our fault. Okay. So. Uh, he began this 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 young girl that uh, Kinsey introduced uh, Dr. Benjamin to. He uh, began treating with estrogen initially, and then after uh, she had been undergoing those treatments for a while, began requesting is you know are there surgical procedures? Well, because of his time spent at the Sexual Institute mm-hmm. way back in the day, because right by now we're moving into the fifties and sixties. Uh, that he's doing this research. Uh, he he knew that there were surgeons that probably still knew how to do this procedure in places like Germany and Denmark, that these surgeons were still there. He didn't know, are you still doing these surgeries? Is it, you know, is it secret? Is it under wraps or is mm. it out? You know, what 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 is the deal? So he began contacting some of these physicians he used to know. He found surgeons who were still able to do this procedure and he began referring patients back to Germany or sometimes Denmark. Denmark had very strict regulations on doing surgeries on anybody who wasn't a citizen of Denmark. Mm. Uh, So that was very that was a very difficult place. But there were places that this was being done. So he began kind of like as a hub to treat patients if they needed hormone therapy and then refer them to places if they desired surgery that they could have it done. So Germany, Denmark, Casablanca was actually a place they were doing a lot of surgeries. Romantic. (laughs) Go figure. Um, And then he kind of became an endocrinologist in regard to the hormonal end of treatment as as a result of all this. He became an expert on these hormonal therapies. Um, Among his patients was another uh, kind of famous person in history, uh, Christine Jorgensen, who was an actress and a spokesperson for the transgender community. And it really raised awareness in the U.S. at that point um, when she kind of told her story. Hmm. So um, and and now what is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health was originally named after Harry Benjamin. Ah. Okay. And then they they just I don't know. They forgot about they renamed him. (laughs) (laughs) No one remembers him. He's just lost to history. They tried. They were printing letterhead and they're like, what was that cat's name? Henry? Harry? Oh, well. Uh, it's It's fine. Whoever does the next bit of paperwork will remember and they'll put it on. There we go. Oh, just listen to this first. <laughs> the, the beginning of the title of that group makes it seem like it's going to be about wrestling. World Professional <laughs> Association sounds like the beginning of a wrestling organization. So I, <laughs> I, I was interested to find out that was not the case. No, it's not. As far as I know. <laughs> um, that, now, of course, Dr. Benjamin began reaching out to colleagues in the U.S. to say, you know, you can do surgery. I mean, because this was still a time where not all doctors necessarily did surgery. We've moved far enough in history where just because you went to medical school didn't necessarily mean you could do surgery, hmm. which of course is where we are now. You know, I don't do, I don't do surgery. I didn't learn how. Uh, but he began to reach out to some of his colleagues who could do surgeries and say, you know, this is probably something you could learn how to do. And if you did, this would be a huge advantage for my patients because then they wouldn't have to go overseas. And I would be able to provide you with patients to see and do these procedures on. Do you think you could learn how to do them? So uh, through these kind of contacts and his contacts abroad, he began to put together like a network of people who were 
able to do these surgeries. And at the time, a lot of it was being done kind of in secret. Um, mm. there, not that there were any laws against it, but there was a fear if it was announced that the surgeon who did these other procedures within the community or whatever was also doing this. So a lot of it was kind of being done under wraps until Johns Hopkins stepped in. The Johns Hopkins? Ah. Well, not, not like in person. Oh. Like Johns ah. Hopkins. Oh, Sorry. I was so excited. <laughs> no, like that. thought we were going to find out what, what he's doing with the S, extra S in his name. So I was always <laughs> kind of curious. I was just excited. It's like, oh, it's a name I recognize. What's he been up to? I've never known who he actually was. Oh. I'm sorry. That's so disappointing. No, just like Johns Hopkins, the university stepped in. Uh, oh, he was probably a guy at some point, right? Yeah, he was a guy. I don't remember <laughs> what he did. What's he up to these days? <laughs> what is he into now, Sid? The medicines, the medicines that Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got at two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. 
Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. I'm Hal Lublin. I'm Danielle Radford. I am Michael Eagle. And we are the hosts of Tights and Fights, Maximum Fun's newest podcast dedicated to all things wrestling. We'll be talking about Sasha Banks, the women's revolution, Sasha Banks, the brand split, and Sasha Banks' wigs. And we'll also be talking about wrestler fashion. Some wrestlers wear too many clothes. Some wrestlers don't wear enough clothes at all. And I'll be doing impressions of all your favorite wrestlers. New episodes Thursdays on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah, dig it. Tyson Fights Podcast. Tyson Fights. Uh, so several physicians at Johns Hopkins were be kind of kind of becoming aware they were younger physicians who were involved in research and uh, they were becoming aware of of these procedures, these surgeries being done and wondering, hmm, is this something we should be where here we are, this renowned institute of medical research. Is this something we should be doing? And they were already and this is kind, this is a whole other subject unto itself. But at Johns Hopkins, they were already doing procedures that were somewhat similar to, to some of these things on intersex patients, mm-hmm. which mm. exactly, which is a whole other topic because these were done uh, against anybody's, and nobody was asked permission. These were forced on children. Yeah, so yeah this is, it is, it is a whole can of worms, the intersex thing, because that is like, at least within the US, that seems to be the, the root of a lot of surgeons expertise is, hey, these children have been born with ambiguous genitalia. We're going to make a decision on their behalf of what to do with their genitals, and they may grow up liking it or not. Exactly. I guess we'll find out. Fifty-fifty chance. Right. That's that's uh, you're exactly right, yeah. and that's um, so. Unfortunately, a lot of the kind of technical expertise that some of these surgeons already had was born of that, mm. um, but their interest grew beyond that. And so they opened what was called the Gender Identity Clinic in 1966, and they began treating patients with hormones and, as well, surgery. They were kind of the uh, beginning of this very strict criteria, uh, I think some of what you've already started to talk about, Mm. for uh, hormone therapy or certainly for surgery. Um, They had a, there was a psychiatric evaluation that was standard that everyone had to undergo. Uh, You had to start with the hormone therapy and you had to spend a year kind of with the hormone therapy presenting as that gender. And then after a year, if they decided you still really, really wanted it, then they might do the surgery for you. Yeah. Can I, I, I do want to say something on the, the year wait there that you mentioned mm-hmm. there after like starting hormones wait this long. That That is still a thing we have in the UK. Um, it's often referred to as the real life experience test or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a really awkward thing to put trans people through because a lot of it basically comes down to, Hey, what like uh, occasionally this is even used as a barrier to accessing hormones. And it's this idea of you have to present as your target gender for a year or two years or however long the, the window is before mm-hmm. we'll help you with medical transition in any way. And it puts trans people in this really weird position where 
They've not yet had any medical help offered to them, but are having to try and present as their target gender regardless, mm. which right. can be tricky because yeah. without horm having started hormones, for example, it's like, I don't want to have this facial hair going on and I don't want this and that. And like, it, it's difficult. I It's all stages that are put in there, as you said, to be like, oh, we've got to make sure you're definitely sure. But again, it puts trans people in really awkward positions where they just have to kind of tough it out for a year, where it's like, oh, there's every chance that people will know that you're trans, even if you don't want them to, while you're waiting for hormones. Hooray! <laughs> that, I, I, that's a really good point. And, and that was, you know, it's, it's interesting. As I was reading about, because I was reading about the specifically the gender identity clinic um, and from a an interview that they've done about it recently with a patient who she went to the gender identity clinic thought she was going to kind of work with them and then was not pleased with the way they were going about things and thought you know what I don't think this is for me and uh, her as she was talking about the experience she was saying you know the the problem is that they kept talking about and, and I saw this language a lot like the intensity of uh, mm. exactly yeah of a person's, you know, transgender self, basically. How intense are you it's, as your gender identity? Yeah, it's it's this idea of grading trans people on, like, how trans are you? And it's it's weird because, like, if you try and apply that to anything else, it sounds ludicrous. It's like, oh, can you, are you allowed to say that you're gay? Are you, are you gay enough on the gay scale? It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's weird to be like, yeah, you, you're dysphoric, but were you dysphoric early enough? Are you dysphoric enough now? How far are you on our scale? No one's ever questioned me on how straight I am. No one's ever asked me, like, are you, like, monster truck rally straight? Or are you just... <laughs> I will be the first to ask you, how straight are you, Justin? I'm, like, a good amount of straight, I think, for my height and build. <laughs> I feel like I have this the regular amount of straight just like right in the middle <laughs> like if you did a chart of straight i feel like like i'm not at the top i'm not at the bottom but i feel like i'm just about average <laughs> I, that's a, see it's a ludicrous question i don't even yeah, know how to answer it is like, a ludicrous it's, it's question baffling. but like that's what trans people basically get asked is like it, it's a bunch of questions about like did you feel this like can can you remember feeling this when you were like three or four? And I'm like, is is that relevant? I feel it now. <laughs> that, right. That's exactly. And you know, when I think when I was reading about that, and I was thinking, the only corollary I could really think of to that is if you it, like in the medical. When I'm talking about a medical condition, there are times where I will grade things as mild, moderate, or severe. And so then again, I think it's language that that refers to it as a psychiatric or medical condition mm. um and i i think that's very I, I i have to imagine that's where these doctors heads were and then obviously that's wrong and problematic and i could see why many patients would go there talk with these people and say "Ooh, this is not can we use this as an opportunity to sort of circle back on something that we talked about last uh uh last episode or we mm -hmm. touched on in the last chunk of episodes about gender dysphoria yeah we I, I wanted to bring that up. I'm oh, well, I'm sorry up. I jumped ahead of you, Sidster. I didn't mean to. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Go, you go. Go ahead. You're <laughs> a physician. I'm I'm literally just a doofus. The, I, this, is a, this is kind of a question that has arisen to me. So as I was, when we were doing the conversion therapy episode, I very peripherally touched on gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. 
as a diagnosis that has been kind of abused or misused to as an excuse for well this this person has gender dysphoria and the treatment for it is let's send them to conversion therapy to make them the gender we want them to be that we feel as for whatever terrible reason we want them to be and and that because it's been used that way that it's problematic but as i've read that it's it's more complex than that because there's also mm-hmm. necessary that you have a diagnosis to justify like to insurance companies yeah it's, so. it's it is a really awkward um it's a really awkward question like i under the uk medical guidelines i do ha- i got diagnosed with gender dysphoria mm-hmm. and it's a thing that like i get its function and why it's distinct and different from classifying gay people under the dsm in that being gay in order to be comfortable with being gay you don't you you probably won't at any point require medication or surgery to be comfortable with being gay which is a good Mm -hmm. reason to not put it in the dsm but because of the fact that some trans people will want access to medication and surgeries and associated things like uh, voice training and things like that. I understand why a diagnosis is put there as a marker to say, okay, you've got this diagnosis, therefore you are now eligible for X, Y, and Z. But it is, it is awkward. I don't, there's not a good solution really to the issue Mm -hmm. because like it serves a functional purpose, even if it is a bit unfortunate that it is in the dsm in the same way that like homosexuality used to be mm-hmm. sure laura i hate to sound like a a, a doofus uh multiple <laughs> times in one episode but you mentioned something in, in passing there about voice training and i'm just completely ignorant of of that what 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 are you referring to okay uh i can only speak for myself of myself and for, for as a trans woman Vocal training is the idea that as a trans woman, estrogen doesn't undo changes to the voice done by testosterone. So for me, as an Mm -hmm. example, when I went through testosterone-based puberty, my voice dropped. And stopping, uh, stopping taking testosterone and starting taking estrogen doesn't undo the fact that my voice physically dropped. Mm. And Mm -hmm. the vocal training is something that is offered in the UK to trans people um, under the NHS. And it's basically just like, imagine if you went to a singing teacher and they taught you how to sing at slightly higher registers and they taught you better vocal control. It's that same type of teaching, but themed around improving, getting your vocal tone to where you want it to be, but also helping with mannerisms and vocal inflections ways of speaking that might have been learnt over time before transition and working out how to get those into more naturally female ranges hmm. interesting i'm well, sorry i just didn't even know that was eh, that's all right a thing. it's not a thing it's not a deal. thing i ever did um i i self-taught myself changing my voice by doing a bunch of podcasts but <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing that's on offer uh sid where were we i'm sorry we keep we keep going down all these uh diversions (laughs) well that was a lot of interesting stuff that's that's what's making this episode i think special and even better so that's okay (laughs) uh so as i mentioned they were doing this at johns hopkins and and again this is kind of questionable because 
obviously they're providing a service that was not being routinely provided at the time, which is great. And they were attempting to do it in an evidence-based fashion. Let's see mm. how we can do this so that it will work, so that we know the best way to do this next time, which is, of course, what we always try to do in medicine. But on the flip side, as I mentioned, there was also a lot of, I think, bias that went into the criteria that was developed and misunderstanding of what they were even talking about and dealing with and alienation of a lot of patients. But there was at least, we were kind of moving towards a better direction. And a lot of universities tried to follow suit. There were about 20 different universities across the U.S. who developed their own program to train physicians and students and do the same thing. And this would have continued to go except for in 1979, based on this evidence, a terribly flawed study was done by, uh. bi yes, by biased researchers at Johns Hopkins who were, their main interest was to shut this program down. Hmm. Uh, it was a more conservative kind of administration that had moved in. They didn't like this and they wanted it shut down. And so they commissioned the study. And basically the results that they published said, you know what, the patients that we are treating here are less happy than they were before we treated them. And they regret doing this. And we shouldn't do this anymore. And that's the end of our episode, folks. No. I <laughs> never uh, thought it would turn out this way. No. No, no that's not actually Yeah, it turns accurate. out I'm, I'm deeply unhappy. And oh, no, I've got to rewind <laughs> oh, no. the clock. What a twist. <laughs> Nobody thought it would shake out like this. What a twist. It, yeah, this, was... this is this is the podcast where I announce I'm detransitioning. You know, that's just totally a thing. <laughs> Uh, it, it was very unfortunate because this this one study and, th and they were really like, if you look at the way it went down, they were looking for a reason. Mm -hmm. And this study was it was totally uh, the they handpicked certain people to ask the questions to. They didn't ask the appropriate questions. They were asked in very biased ways um, that any degree of of kind of like dysphoria that may still exist was construed as a failure of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, even if the patient maybe actually was happier than previously, if they were the least bit unhappy, it was considered a failure. And so as a result of this was shut down and many other universities kind of said, well, if Johns Hopkins isn't going to do this anymore, we're not going to do it, which is why you see this doesn't happen for the most part in universities in the U.S., which is a weird thing because typically medical advances research anything that's being done that's new and we're trying to improve on and that's cutting edge is done in a university setting and for the most part these surgeries now in the u.s are done at private offices um, totally removed from universities stemming from this incident mm. um, and it's it's had really far-reaching consequences like you still today will see studies that are skewed in the same way to, to make the same kind of um, conclusions. There's a lot of them that will do things like, okay, let's ask you about happiness at some point before you hit puberty, and let's ask you about happiness literally just after you've come out of surgery and everything is the worst thing in the world. It's like, oh, they're less happy at this point. Like, A lot of studies like that still happen to varying degrees of uh, existence. It's it is not a good thing, but hooray. Right. Luckily, at this point, this is kind of, I found this, like, the story took this strange turn that I did not expect. So there was an office that um, 
that kept doing these procedures even after a lot of universities had stopped. And it was run by a country doctor named Dr. Stanley Biber, who lived in this little mining town in Trinidad, called Trinidad, Colorado. So it was like population like 4,500 or something. I mean, this tiny little town. He was just this like general practitioner kind of trained, but jack of all trades doctor who would uh, deliver babies and do minor surgical procedures and then also see you for like your colds or whatever. Um, he had a, a local social worker who knew him, came to him and said, you know, I've heard about these surgeries. This was in 1969. I've heard about these surgeries that they're doing across the U.S. I would like this done. Is Can you do it? And he said, well, yeah, I could probably figure out. That I could probably do that. <laughs> America. <laughs> That's how we do it over here. Well, we just, yeah, why not? It's like, oh, I lost the instruction booklet, but I can probably still put this Ikea cabinet together. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. So he, he sent a letter to Hopkins and said, could you send me like some diagrams and some like some instructions mm-hmm. and so I can do this? And they did. They sent him some descriptions and some books and he read it all, studied it and then started doing these surgeries in this tiny little mining town in Colorado. And it became kind of this like mecca for these surgeries it just it all these people all over the u.s started hearing that hey i can refer my patients there there's a doctor there and he started doing them and it's interesting the hospital he worked at was actually a catholic hospital Mm. so at first he was hiding the charts from the nuns so they wouldn't know (laughs) that he was doing this eventually they they found out and they complained so he wrote a letter to the vatican pleading his case and basically saying this is what this is the right thing to do what i'm doing is the right thing these are people who are coming to me as patients they need my help this is what helps them i should do this and he got a letter back from the pope saying okay (laughs) you can well done well done 1970s pope (laughs) there you go (laughs) what a chill pope i know i know yeah everyone's going on about the current pope being being like chill pope but this this previous pope seems all right this was chill before it was pretty, cool. Pretty chill Pope. I, so. Listen, if you know what Pope this is, he has probably done some other very unchill things. Oh, we yeah. do not Mo- hear most about it. Popes did some very unchill things, but this is one chill thing that whoever this Pope is did. <laughs> I know. I was I was raised Catholic, so I always have to be very careful like with this. I know my history. I have to be very careful. <laughs> but but he so he continued to do these surgeries. He did about in his career, he did about five thousand surgeries. Uh and one of his biggest desires was that he would find a surgeon who was willing to to move (laughs) to this tiny little town in Colorado and continue his practice. It was one of the the biggest things he wanted. And he found a predecessor, uh, Dr. Marcy Bowers, who moved to Trinidad and learned these procedures under him and began to do the same things and worked there after he retired and would have still been working there today if it weren't for political forces at the hospital that began to raise prices on these surgeries mm. tremendously. And eventually she felt like she could not do her job there, you know, to, to any patient satisfaction. And so she actually, even though her headquarters, like she saw as her official office there, her like where she does her procedures are in California now. Mm. Um, but she's still doing these surgeries to this day. And as I was reading about this, Dr. Marcy Bowers, I saw her called several times the uh, 
rock star of the transgender surgery world, <laughs> which I didn't I didn't know that, but I I've never uh, heard that either. But now I I really like the thought of her just like stopping mid surgery to do a sick guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the OR. Marcy Bowers. <laughs> she sounds really cool. I want to read more about her. I was I was kind of looking at her website. She was the first, as I understand it, the first transgender woman to be doing these procedures. And then she's also a, a worldwide spokesperson for um, stopping female genital mutilation mm. uh, mm. worldwide. So she's she does sound like a rock star. I will say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on a side note, we had mentioned the the uterine transplant issue. And, and I know we wanted to talk about that a little more because the question was why we tried this in the 30s and then we really haven't tried it again until the last couple of years. And even then we've not tried it. We've just skirted around the issue, at least as far as trans people are concerned. It's been just kind of there as a topic of discussion for a few years. Exactly. Uh, after a big old gap. <laughs> You're exactly right. And I, part of part of the issue was purely we did not understand, like I mentioned before, we didn't understand anti-rejection drugs and that kind of thing. So it took us a while to understand how to safely transplant any organ, including the uterus. Um, specifically, the uterus took us a while to figure out, could we transplant a uterus that would be functional in terms of carrying a child? And if we can do that and we have to use anti-rejection drugs, are those going to be safe for the patient and the developing fetus? And I think that yeah. is part of why this research has taken so long. Uh, they've, they did it in a lot of animal models before they felt comfortable attempting it at all in humans. Mm -hmm. um, I know that in 2014, was the most recent that we've had any kind of success in this arena in Sweden. Mm. Uh, there were, I, I believe this is the batch where of the people who were like potential candidates for, for this procedure, one of them was a trans woman. If I, is that the right one? Yes. 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 And I'll be honest, I tried to find the actual, like, why was this, was it random? Were, were they, excluded specifically because of that i don't i don't yeah. know if you have the answer i don't have the answer no, to that. I've, I've tried looking into it and from what i can tell it wasn't exclusion on the basis of being trans because you would think that they wouldn't get to that stage of the of the selection process if mm -hmm. them being trans was the ultimate sure. problem i guess like you'd think they'd catch that earlier but it, it is one of those things that, like, regardless of why it didn't happen, it got a lot of people talking, because a, a lot of a lot of the community of trans women had not really thought about uterine transplants as a possibility, because it mm -hmm. was just never a discussed thing. And I think seeing a trans woman shortlisted for one got a lot of people very hopeful about this being something that might one day be a possible plausible option for trans women. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that just comes down to, there's a lot of things that trans women get shouted at to tell us why we are not, you know, female enough to be women, you know, whether it, like, um, not having a uterus is one of them that's repeatedly shouted. And I think mm -hmm. for a lot of trans women, if that was something that was possible and happened, even if it didn't happen to that individual trans person, it would be, 
a way to shout back slightly like you know a lot of those things are really dismissive of femininity anyway because there are women who are cisgender who are born without uteruses or who you know can't have children for whatever reason mm-hmm. or don't produce estrogen etc or there, there exactly. are lots, lots of the things that are thrown at trans women to be insults are things that like there are cisgender women like that and you don't discredit their femininity for those reasons but that's a whole other side thing <laughs> no that but that i think that's a very relevant especially in this conversation i from what i read because they've they actually were successful with nine patients in sweden mm. um from those nine patients and i think the ones that finally made it to the final kind of selection process to the end of it and actually had uterine transplants done um i think the majority of them were born without uteruses and then there was one who uteri? had uteri sorry. maybe i don't know that's a yeah, complete probably guess uteri. <laughs> probably uteri but uh and then there was one who had had her uterus removed after cervical cancer mm. uh and I, th- I thought this was interesting they they only used donor uteri they Mm. did not use cadaver uteri which is what they've tried in the u.s Mm. because this has never successfully been done in the u.s Uh, Mm. it was very highly publicized last year they completed the surgery at cleveland clinic but two weeks later they had to remove the uterus due to infection Mm. so we've we've never done this in the u.s successfully but uh they did with with all nine patients in sweden they were successful and so far there have been five children born as a result of this, the donors of these uteruses, I also thought this was fascinating because they were looking for tissue matches. In several cases, it was the patient's mother who donated uh. her uterus because they were a good tissue match. And there was something about that that I thought was kind of beautiful because. Yeah, they... there was something really sweet to that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> when you can think it, it's the uterus that carried you. That now has carried your child. Yeah, it's beautiful. That is... He's the uterus carries the baby, right? I, yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we're getting into very um do you like a uterus in your uterus territory of we're going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe exhibit would be a great guess. <laughs> but but they th- they found that this was also really helpful because one issue that when they had attempted these things before, they weren't necessarily uh, looking to see if the donors of the uteruses had ever carried a child before. Mm-hmm. Not that, it, and the only reason that matters is because then you know that the uterus is in, intrinsically capable of carrying a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you don't have to worry that maybe maybe that uterus was never capable of carrying a child in the first place. Mm. So, um, yeah. the rejection drugs we now know are safe in pregnancy. So yeah, that's there's there's some obvious like there are obviously some additional difficulties in doing this with trans women as opposed to cisgender women in that mm-hmm. like you're pretty much going to be guaranteed to require a C-section for example because how how else is is any is a baby ever going to get out of there for example um yeah. or the questions of surgically are there ways to connect a uterus to a vaginoplastied vagina there's a lot of questions about doing this with trans women that like no one's tried so we don't really know sure well but i'll tell you we're closer than you'd think because (gasps) currently we can't we don't know how to um we cannot deliver the baby vaginally no matter who the patient is who receives the transplanted uterus so they, all of these patients required C-sections. 
So well, that's, that would that's an, not that's, actually be an impediment. There we go. That's the thing I've learned. Hooray, and, uh, Sawbones, yeah, te- teaching me things. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not um, currently, they are not actually, I hate to use these terms, hooking up. It sounds like <laughs> you're plugging things in. They're not hooking up the uterus to the fallopian tubes or ovaries if they're present. Mm. So uh, all they're doing is taking... If if they want to, they can harvest their own eggs and create frozen embryos ahead of time. Or you could use, just like we do with, you know, artificial insemination in vitro, any of that. We could mm. use a donor embryo uh, to implant in the uterus anyway. So all of these things are not, you know, are not really barriers. I think I think the next step is just the only mention of it that I, as I was trying to read to see, is there some reason we haven't attempted it? Is there some, is it just that... They just haven't selected a transgender woman yet randomly, or is there some other reason? And the only discussion I saw was just this thought that we need to make sure that all of the hormonal support for a pregnancy is identical. And I think there was just some question, how do we make sure that all the hormonal mechanisms are exactly the same in every patient once we have successfully transplanted the uterus, implanted the embryo, and then, you know, because the, the hormonal changes that are involved with supporting a pregnancy from then on have to be there. Um, but I think it's it's more of just a we're not entirely certain yet, but not a it isn't in place. I think yeah. it's just that would be the next step. Well, if if they if they sort all that stuff out and they're looking for someone, I'll, I'll stick my hand up. Like, you know, it, <laughs> it's all good with me. <laughs> um we know that like we're we're at the is there anything else Sid? I, am that's i that's all the history i got all the history you got i know that we're sort of at uh, this has been more of a survey i think than normally mm-hmm. we would do of a topic there's just so much to to talk about and we know that we did not get anywhere close to covering everything that um sort of could be uh explored here because it's a really deep topic uh that and and i feel like in discovering that for me personally is like we we saw just like how broad of a topic it was and how much there was to consider i think it speaks to i if, if we circle back to the the difficulty in finding doctors who are uh aware of the right things to do i i get the sense from and and to correct me if i'm wrong but when you've talked about it, I get the sense that it's for some doctors, it's not necessarily malicious, but more a case of just not knowing where to start, not mm-hmm. knowing how to begin educating themselves. I mean, is that I would ask both of you because you both have a lot more experience than me, Justin McElroy, <laughs> of, in, in in various aspects of this. Like, does that do you, do you think that that's a fair characterization? I, I on on my end, I'll just say I think I think there is a lot of ignorance i think that that's the the primary thing is just people don't you're right people don't know um we we, because we live in such a small town such a small community and in a rural kind of area uh i think i i would be lying if i didn't say that i have seen doctors that i know people who i do think have a mindset that this is something that we need to you know, we, we shouldn't be participating in that. This mm. is somehow morally wrong. Um, I hate to say that that exists, but I'd be lying if I said that it didn't. But I think largely speaking among my colleagues and the per- people that I personally work with, which is in a very, you know, we live in a very red state. Um, I think it's just, they don't know. They just don't mm-hmm. understand. 
I I think from my perspective, there's there's two issues concurrently going. There's the lack of knowledge, which is a barrier at the start. And when you get up to specialists and you get to the top end, I think you have a separate issue, which mainly comes from that one study that implied, oh, you know, people aren't happy once they've transitioned. And this fear that specialists seem to have of, we need to make absolutely, perfectly, definitely 1 million percent sure that you are trans, because we don't want you to come back later and say, why did you do this to me? This was the wrong thing to do. And mm -hmm. that worry about treatment has sort of created a system, at least in, in the UK, where, like, to, to give a fair example, and most of this is because of fear-based, oh, we'll just double-check, or we'll make you wait a bit longer to make sure you don't change your mind. I started talking to GPs about transition in 2011. Uh, if I had waited and kept using the, the NHS in the UK, I would still be at least a year away from having had a vaginoplasty. It would have been a good seven years of waiting between first talking to a doctor and being able to have surgery for something that was causing me considerable discomfort. Um, as it was, I ended up a year ago going through private uh, surgical options, and I was very thankful that the internet was very, very giving and supporting and helped me to be able to do that. But it would have been a seven-year wait from talking to a doctor to having the option to have surgery for something that was causing me great discomfort. And so much mm -hmm. of that is just fear that I will turn around a year later and say, why did you do this? That's, that's so unfortunate if a lot of that, like you said, has stemmed from those studies, mm. since so many were, were, like you've already mentioned, wrong and flawed and poorly done. And, um, and doctors should know better. We know we're, we're supposed to be trained in good research and bad research. We're supposed mm -hmm. to be able to look at studies and say, this is not well done. You know, we, we should be more critical of that than we are. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it's a real shame because honestly, like it's depressing that you can't just go to a doctor as a trans person and say, hey, I feel really uncomfortable with my body. I want some help with that and just be believed because i think it's fair to say most people who are not trans at no point feel so bad about their body that they decide to go talk to a doctor about it right like yeah you know yeah. if someone's come to tell you hey this is the thing i've been dealing with for a while i'm you know i'm really uncomfortable with my body and i want to you know pursue options about that it's a pretty good chance they're probably trans yeah yeah i think at that point you yeah exactly we we take patients at their word for most complaints yeah you know most things they come to the doctor for why why not usually that? if you tell a doctor your symptoms the doctor will trust that you've accurately reported <laughs> them they won't ask you to prove your symptoms over the course of uh seven years yeah for the, uh, for the next seven years just make sure you still definitely have that toothache <laughs> exactly you know i'm gonna need you to actually have a seizure for me yeah um, I'm, I'm sorry i know that you've been to the er four times with them but i i'm not gonna buy it till i see it um laura thank you so much for talking with us about this i think it's fascinating and and i really appreciate you sharing your your perspective with, with us um where can people find your work uh to 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 because i know you you sort of write all over the place yeah i do things sort of all over the place uh the easiest place to keep track of me is at laura k buzz pretty much everywhere laura k buzz on twitter youtube anything like that um 
I also have a Patreon. That's what pays my bills. So patreon.com slash Laura K Buzz. You'll find all my stuff there as well. I also run a video game website called Let's Play Video Games. So letsplayvideogames.com or just anywhere on the internet that will pay me to write. Um, well, Sydney, is there anything else you want to touch on before we, oh, we should thank the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines. Yes. The international and I just, program. I just also wanted, I know you already did, but like Copycat. I wanted to for me too, like personally, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, say thank you, Laura, for coming on and, and talking about all this. This has been, and uh, like, this has been fun, but it's also been so informative and interesting. And I, I have found it personally very, uh, yeah, fun to engage in and so i'm sure our listeners will too but thank you so much thank you for having me this has been really good and i'm just sorry that i couldn't get through all of the things because as you said there is too many things yeah. there's a ton to talk about and it's definitely <laughs> I, I'm, tr I'm struggling with how to title this episode because i think anything that i call it will be insufficient but um it's definitely something that we want to on a lot of different topics try to to corral more people into uh right. walking us through stuff where there, yeah. there's a, a huge personal aspect to it um and and i would say a lack of awareness too which mm -hmm. sort of complicates things um mm -hmm. and, and i'm glad that we've been able to to talk yeah. about it do, do you mind if i say something before we before we finish up completely just something that i think Please. is important to say after the because we've been talking about it about this stuff very like historically sciencey focus mm -hmm. Like sure. just just from my perspective of someone who has been on hormone therapy for a long time and who has had lower surgery, has had a vaginoplasty, I just want to say to anyone that like isn't trans and is like a bit iffy about trans people and about surgery and hormones and things. I lived 20 years of my life uncomfortable in my own skin and the 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 moment I woke up from from my vaginoplasty, there was it 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 wasn't as people sometimes imagine this grand moment of excitement. It was just a weight that was gone, and in the year or so since surgery, that weight has never come back. This just pressure and discomfort and general unhappiness that had sat on me for twenty years disappeared overnight, and I just. I hope people will take that seriously because, you know, surgery and hormones have made me comfortable in my body. And that's a thing that people, you know, not enough people take seriously still. Sorry, I know that's a bit of a downer way to end, but I just felt it was a thing that was probably appropriate to say. I think more than appropriate. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Sydney. For for both of you, I'm Justin McCory. It's weird. I've never outroed with three people before. I don't know grammatically <laughs> what I'm doing anymore. But the fact remains that we will be here next week. This has been Sawbones. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.